check. <clears throat> well, thanks for listening to Worship Local. Guys, this is our podcast where we invite you into the long-winded, ever-deepening, and the sometimes winding conversation of Frontier Church in Des Moines, Iowa, where we exist for the glory of Jesus and the joy of Des Moines. So look, guys, as we've worked through the book of 1 John, we've we've seen just how serious John is about the spiritual realm, particularly forces of darkness that he calls the spirit of the Antichrist and another character that he calls the evil one. So today's podcast is, it's, it's going to go down a deep and nerdy and endless theological rabbit hole about the origins of these forces of darkness, particularly the origins of demons. And almost, I just got to say this up front, guys, almost none of this episode is my original thought. I am drawing deeply from a few sources, particularly scholars like Archie Wright, Michael Heiser, and a lot of the Bible Project as well. Um, So just another side note before we kind of kick off this episode, I doubt anybody is going to listen to this podcast today and agree with 100% fidelity, myself included, with everything I say on the podcast. And that's okay, okay? What I hope it does is I hope it accelerates our understanding of ourselves as people who are engaged in spiritual warfare. So, whether you live in Des Moines or elsewhere, we hope this podcast helps you worship local. So, as guys, as we've read through 1 John, I hope you've noticed that John has a really high sensitivity to the spiritual realm. And um, when I read some Christians write about 1 John, and when I hear some Christians talk about 1 John, I've noticed a lot of Christians don't really see that because a lot of us only see scripture through filters, right? These are filters, are categories, categories in the Bible that we understand that are really familiar to us, categories like faith, hope, love, and trust, really great categories. Um, But when we read the Bible with those categories and those categories only in the front of our minds, what ends up happening is um, those categories end up highlighting what's familiar in the text and then filtering out what's unfamiliar in the text. What you end up with is (laughs) Chemex theology. I know a lot of you guys are coffee nerds and you like your Chemexes and you've got, Chloe and I have a Chemex at home that we make coffee with. And in order to brew your desired cup of coffee with a Chemex, there's this filter that holds your coffee grounds in hot water at the top of the Chemex. And it filters out all the grounds, right? And it guarantees that there's no chunks in your, in your coffee, that there's nothing undesirable in your cup of coffee. Um, and we do theology like that a lot, right? We filter out the things that we don't desire or we filter out the things that we don't understand or the things that are kind of complex and confuse us. And what we end up with is a clean cup of theology that's really easy to drink down. Um, and that happens to First John a lot, right? John's letter gets run through the Chemex theology filter a lot. The epistle of First John is referred to a lot as the epistle of love right? It's just about love, bro. 
And John himself is often referred to as an apostle of love. And for good reason, it really is all over the letter of 1 John. But what you don't often hear, what I don't often hear, is 1 John referred to as an epistle of spiritual warfare, man. And John as the apostle of spiritual war. You don't hear John talked about a lot that way, but those things are equally true about John. I mean, early in the letter, let's just survey the letter really quickly. Early in the letter, in chapter 2, verse 14, John says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And then as as chapter 2 ends, it's like, it's like, whoa, John drops this little ditty in chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. So you, you have John introducing these mysterious, strange characters of darkness who, in his own language, are trying to deceive us. And then in chapter 3, as the letter progresses, the language gets even stronger. Chapter 3, verse 8, Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And John just continues as the letter goes on to draw from the Old Testament for more characters of spiritual darkness. A little bit later in chapter 3, John brings up an oldie but goodie. He says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And and then in chapter 4, he really pulls back the camera to show us the spirits that are behind all of these characters. What he says in chapter 4 is, beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay. So the big question, the big question is, where did John get his spiritual worldview from? Where, where did John learn to think like this? Yes, we know that this letter is inspired by God, but at a practical level, where did John get his theology of demonic spirituality? Okay, so kind of a helpful, a helpful place for us to start would be a couple of weeks ago, I preached a sermon on chapter 4 of 1 John, kind of that classic text where John says, Beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many prophets have, false prophets have gone out into the world. So here's probably the craziest thing. <laughs> here's probably the craziest thing that I said in that sermon about testing the spirits. I'm just going to read the whole paragraph. Here's what I said from the pulpit. Demonic spirits try to hijack worship through corrupting theology. Corrupting theology, of course, leads to the worship of a different God. And this theme is all throughout the Bible. So watch how it flourishes in Deuteronomy 32 in your Old Testament. It says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when He divided mankind, He fixed the borders of the peoples, according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. So think about Deuteronomy 32 for a second. Just think. 
What Deuteronomy 32 is saying is at the Tower of Babel, God divided the nations. He chooses Israel for himself and he gives the rest of the world, the other nations, over to the rule of, quote, the sons of God. Now, quick side note about that phrase. That phrase, sons of God, has not yet come to mean redeemed humanity that God saves to rule alongside of him. And we know that because that's not how the Old Testament uses the phrase sons of God. And we also know that because at this point in the narrative at the Tower of Babel, God has not yet chosen Abraham and begun to redeem humanity to himself. So at this point in the biblical narrative, the phrase sons of God can't refer to Israel because Israel doesn't exist. So the phrase sons of God refers to what it refers to in the rest of the Old Testament, which are spiritual beings who are supposed to rule under the authority of God. Just one example, we know this because Job, later on in the Old Testament, refers to these beings by asking, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So in Job, the sons of God are these spiritual beings who were there at the foundation of the earth and sang for joy. So these are the beings that God gives the nations over to be ruled and reigned by. You can't pick this up with Paul, right? Paul knows this, obviously, as a Jewish guy. He he knows this, and he even refers to this in Romans chapter 1. He says, therefore, God gave them up. He gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. And so, When God gives them over to these sons of God in Deuteronomy 32, this is exactly what they end up doing. They end up worshiping creatures rather than the Creator. By the time Deuteronomy 32 ends, these spiritual beings who were supposed to rule and reign under the authority of God with dignity have become corrupt and they get referred to as demons. Here's the way Deuteronomy 32 says it. The nation stirred Yahweh to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger, and they sacrificed demons that were, they sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers have never dreaded. So here's the big picture. Rather than ruling over the nations justly, These spiritual beings become corrupt and demonic, and they pervert the worship of the nations to demon worship. And all of a sudden, what you see is religious pluralism take root. All of a sudden, all the nations of the world are worshiping and making sacrifices to other gods. Um, The classic psalm that supports this view and explains it, really. It doesn't just support this view, but explains it, is Psalm 82. Psalm 82 is essentially a dialogue between God and these these sons of God, these spiritual beings that belong to what Psalm 82 calls a divine council. Here's the way Psalm 82 begins. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And God says to these beings, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And then later in Psalm 82, after criticizing these other gods, Yahweh pronounces condemnation over them by saying, You are gods, 
sons of the Most High, all of you, and nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. <laughs> oh, okay. So, um, I know that's not what you heard in Sunday school, <laughs> but it's what John learned in Sunday school growing up. And that's why John is so fluent in writing and talking about spiritual forces of darkness, because naturally he sees them as a very real part of the fabric and the nature of the universe. Um, but we still haven't answered that question of origin. Where did they come from? Like, Sure, it's helpful to know that they deceive. It's helpful to know that they hijack worship. But what's their origin story? So here's what we've talked about so far. We've talked about what scholars call the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. This worldview that the Tower of Babel was this formative moment for mankind where God confused the nations and gave them over to the rule and reign of other spiritual beings. And the nations, rather than worshiping the God of the Bible, they turned against them and worshiped these other spiritual beings, what Deuteronomy calls strange gods demons, what Psalm 82 calls sons of the Most High. But, (laughs) okay, that's just the beginning of the rabbit hole. Now, as we seek to identify the origin of these beings a little bit more clearly, I'm just going to put a huge disclaimer up front. The Bible is not terribly clear, okay? It is not terribly clear about the origin of these spiritual beings and how they end up invading God's good created world. So the scholarship around demons, because the scripture themselves are kind of fuzzy about it, the scholarship around demons gets really, really, really weird. But we're going to we're gonna have some fun here and, and just think deeply. So where, where'd they come from? How'd they get here? Well, here's the first view. The first view is essentially, we don't know exactly. And this is a great position to have. This is a great place to be. There's no book in the 66 books of the Bible about the origin story of demons. And honestly, the biblical writers sort of take for granted that we know about the origins of demons, and they don't really feel the need to ever explain it to us. So that's a great place to start. And it's also where some of us are going to finish at the end of this podcast. We don't know exactly. Let's make things interesting, okay? Here's... Here's the second view. We might call this the paradise lost hypothesis. A long time ago, John Milton wrote a poem called Paradise Lost. It's a a classic poem. Um, It's a beautiful poem. It's very influential. And Milton describes the origins of the forces of darkness primarily as a rebellion against God led by a singular character, Satan. So what happens is... In the poem, God calls together a gathering of all the angels to announce that he's made the decision to exalt his son to reign over the angels. And Satan, Satan ain't having that, right? Satan believes that he and Jesus are equal in rank. And so he concludes that for him and other angels to submit to the son, heck no, man, that's unfair and that's unjust. So rather than laying aside his freedom, To subject himself to the leadership of Jesus, he rallies other angels around him to rebel against God, right? 
So here's the way that Satan articulates it in Paradise Lost. He says, Will ye submit your necks and choose to bend the supple knee? Ye will not, if ye know yourselves, natives and sons of heaven possessed before by none. Right? We're possessed by none before, and I'm not bending my knee. And in Milton's poem, a third of the angels join the rebellion alongside of Satan, and Satan even mocks those who don't follow his lead. He says, I see that most through sloth had rather serve. And then Satan's little army kind of attacks heaven, right? And now Paradise Lost is beautifully written. It's from the 17th century, but it's not a part of the biblical canon. And nobody has ever thought that it belongs in the biblical canon. So it's totally just literary speculation. But because of the popularity of the poem, it's probably the view that most Western Christians cling to who have thought about this subject. So, um, kind of in summary, in this view, there's a singular rebel, Satan, who convinces other angels to rebel alongside of him, and those other angels are demons. So, that's one one origin story. Here's here's a, a slightly different one, and this is a weirder view, but it's also the view that I'm more sympathetic to. Um, some of the top Old Testament biblical scholars believe that... <laughs> Oh, okay, this is even hard. I know how crazy this sounds, um, but just hang with me and don't, don't, don't click out of the podcast. But some of the top testament, top Old Testament biblical scholars believe that demons are the disembodied spirits of dead Nephilim, <laughs> which is like whoa. What does that statement even mean? That statement requires a ton of unpacking for almost every member at our church. Um, Let me unpack that. In Genesis 6, we see a companion poem to Genesis 3 to explain the fall. Most of you are familiar with Genesis 3. The serpent deceives Adam and Eve, and there's a what what biblical scholars call a human transgression. Lots of scholars refer to Genesis 6 as the divine transgression because it's stylistically written like the transgression in Genesis 3 but it describes the transgression of spiritual beings. Here's the way that Genesis 6, this is Genesis 6 in its own words. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days need to be limited to 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and bore children to them. And these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. End Bible verse. I know that sounds crazy to you as a postmodern person, um, but the world's crazy, right? Like, do you really want a Bible that's more tame and less crazy than the reality that you see on a daily basis? So, yeah, like, yeah, it's crazy. Um, um, but so is the world. So these giants are called the Nephilim. And other biblical authors are also going to use other words to refer to them, like Rephaim. And these characters are, they're going to be a big part of the Old Testament. They're, they're going to be the target of the Old Testament conquests, 
like David and Goliath and the the conquest of Joshua. If you look at these conquests in the Old Testament closely, what you notice is that they're not actually aimed by a bloodthirsty God at other human beings he doesn't like. Even though a lot of atheistic people will kind of make that claim and say they can't worship a God like that. But a close scholarly reading of the Old Testament conquests actually reveals that these conquests are aimed at these giant-like figures. Right, the guys over at the Bible projects refer to the conquest as giant purges. And yes, to modern people like us, like like us, this is we're kind of out of our depths thinking about this. Um, but to every ancient religion, this is really pretty run of the mill. Most of Israel's neighboring religions had rulers that claimed to be semi-divine, half God, half man, spawned offspring of spiritual beings. You can do your own studies on giants in the ancient world and all the archaeological discoveries that support it, but we're going to get a little bit weirder even, if you, if you can believe it, okay? Just a little bit. Since the Israelites believed that these Nephilim were half divine and half human, then when they were killed in the flesh, like when Goliath was slayed by David, for instance, their spirits continued to live on. So even though the Old Testament doesn't use the phrase demons very often, it does a couple times, but not very often, it does use other phrases like defiled spirits, unclean spirits, and impure spirits a lot. And those words for defiled and unclean and impure are usually connected to the Levitical law of not touching dead bodies. It would make you richly unclean or defiled or impure. Hence, the connection between these demonic spirits or unclean spirits coming from the dead bodies of Nephilim and Rephaim. And again, I know that this is odd to think about, um, but I, I feel like I need to say this once more. The Bible does not explicitly teach this belief, but here's where the rabbit hole gets a little bit deeper still, and this is why most top-notch Old Testament scholars believe this theory because about there were about 400 years between the time when the New Testament was completed and the New Testament began to be written. So the Old Testament ends and there's 400 or so years before the first New Testament writing is written. So the canon is closed for 400 years. But this time period was not a silent time period. There were lots and lots and lots and lots of intelligent Jewish people who were writing and thinking and debating and interpreting the Old Testament and wondering about what this means and wondering about what that means and debating with one another about the origins of things like these. And so it was a very explosive literary time, those 400 years. Now, although none of the texts that were produced in that time period are authoritative, we can still look at these texts during this time and we can see how Jewish people thought during a time that was really close to the authorship of both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And when we look in that time period, there's a really, really influential book called First Enoch. And here's a summary of First Enoch in the way that um, First Enoch describes the origins of demons. This comes from a scholar. He says, the origin of demons in First Enoch is attributed to the events of Genesis 6, when the Nephilim were killed in these texts, 
Its disembodied spirit was considered a demon, and these demons roamed the earth to harass humans. And the New Testament does not explicitly embrace this belief, though there are traces of the notion, such as demon possession of humans and the effort to be rebodied. So, there you have it. <laughs> and again, just to reiterate what I've stated a few times, the New Testament does not explicitly embrace any of these beliefs. Though the literature from the Jewish community from 400 BC to Jesus' coming does embrace that belief, those texts are not authoritative over you. And so, as a Christian, your conscience is not bound by First Enoch. You don't, you don't have to believe it. And yet, these people did live in the culture when the Old Testament was concluded and the New Testament began. So, at the very least, I think we have to admit that as people who love the Bible, we should at least be like a little interested in their views on the powers of darkness. So, those are a couple different hypotheses about the origins of, of demonic spiritual beings. But he, let's end just with one question. Why, why does this matter? Let me give us three reasons why a deeper theology of the forces of darkness actually matters. First, Understanding these things or thinking deeply about them gives you a bigger vision for the Bible. When you read the Bible with the spiritual backdrop of a first century Jewish man like John, it, it, it just becomes absolutely riveting to read, right? There's just no way that your Bible is going to bore you. It becomes infinitely interesting and fascinating and riveting so given this podcast, I'd even encourage you to go back and reread all of 1 John with this spiritual framework. It'll blow your mind if you read it through this lens. And when you become hungrier from the Bible, we become hungrier for God. It's really that simple. But second, it gives us a bigger vision for theology in general. Something that's worth noting is that in the Gospels, demonic activity is usually located in demonic possession. We read stories about demons inhabiting bodies and causing convulsions, and Jesus comes onto the scene and he casts out demonic spirits. And when he does that, it's because they usually inhabit people in such a way that make them froth at the mouth and cry out in loud voices and cause self-harm. But in other words, in the Gospels, when you read about demonic spirits, they work in really, really obvious ways. But since Jesus so powerfully casts out demons and shames the demonic powers and principalities, it, it almost seems that by the time we read 1 John, 30 to 50 years later, it almost seems like demons have made a halftime adjustment and have changed strategies. Rather than tormenting people in obvious public ways, it seems like they've called an audible, and instead they're going after the church's pulpit. They're trying to hijack the teaching that's happening in the church. They pervert the message of the gospel, right? In 1 John, almost all of John's references to dark spirits are related to false teachings and false prophets. So you got to have a big vision for theology. 
If you're at Frontier Church, you know we have a huge emphasis on biblical theology. Some people have even told me that we have too much of an emphasis on on biblical theology. That's a podcast for a different day. We've got a pastoral statement of faith that's 90-some pages. We preach expository sermons. We like talking about theology in this church. And for us, it's not just a matter of getting the data about God right. For us, it's about creating a strong biblical culture that has the backbone to say no when erroneous teachings and gospels of demons try to make their way through the church. If demons are trying to primarily spread their influence through hijacking theology, then we're going to make sure that our theology is rooted in the Bible because some theologies aren't just wrong. They are under the influence of intelligent, powerful, spiritual beings. And we're not going to have that in our church, guys. Big vision for theology. And third... Understanding these things gives you a bigger vision for the Christian life in general. I think sometimes we get the understanding that the only thing it means to be a Christian and the only thing it means to be part of a church is that we share the gospel with sinners and convert them. And guys, that's a huge part of being a faithful Christian, and we never want to lose our passion in that area. But by covenanting to our church, we also hope that your understanding of the forces of darkness influences the way that you serve us, right? We hope that you pray for our church to be victorious over darkness. We hope that you pray for the teachings of demons to never occur in our pulpits. We hope that you pray for the forces of darkness to be overthrown in the lives of people in our church and in our city. So all of a sudden, when you get this, when you get this spiritual backdrop, you begin to understand God's purpose to reconcile heaven and earth, as the Bible says, and to make all things new. These things become, they just make more and more sense. Here's the way that Tim Keller includes the reconciliation of all things in his definition of the gospel. Keller says, through the person and work of Jesus, God fully accomplishes salvation for us rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him. And then he restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. He restores the creation, all of creation. Yes, the salvation of individuals, but yes, the arts and technology and education and politics and racial relationships and gun violence and child abuse and abortion and sex trafficking and sweatshop labor and relationships. These are all pieces of culture that are under the influence of forces of darkness that don't simply control individual lives, but large chunks of culture. It's our desire to see these forces casted out so that Jesus reclaims all of creation, right? And the church is like the anti-Babel, right? At the Tower of Babel, the nations are disinherited and given over to the abusive and hostile rule of strange and foreign gods. But at the church, we see the opposite happen. The nations are drawn back together. They're reclaimed under the loving rule and reign of Yahweh, the God of the Bible. That's why we have to get this stuff, guys. And this little podcast, it that's just us dipping our toes into a theological and historical study about the origins of demons, right? Dipping our toes. 
So if you're hooked by this or confused by this or you're interested in studying further, make sure you reach out to me, send me a text message, send me, a, send me an email, and I'll make sure that I get some really good resources in your hands to further the conversation for you. But I know that this has been a strange and twisty and, um, and, and, and curvy last 40 minutes or so, but I love you guys. And whether you live in Des Moines or elsewhere, I hope that this podcast helps you worship local. (laughs) 